0: I'm going to jump into some literature review here, and I'm so glad this study was done in the Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology, and this is from May 2019. And the name of this study is the Rate of Correction of Hypernatremia and Health Outcomes in Critically Ill Patients. And as we all know, raising sodium too quickly in hyponatremia is very problematic because you can cause CPM, central pontine myelonisis. So in that situation, we watch the sodium levels very closely and we try to raise the sodium slowly. And for some reason, it has taken hold in adult practice of medicine that the same thing needs to be done for hypernatremia despite no evidence that that should be the case. And I have noticed that for years, the super majority of my colleagues that admit hypernatremia, which is a pretty common problem, particularly in dementia patients and elderly that either don't have access to water or very often are in a late stage of dementia. It's really an end-of-life issue where they stop drinking. But anyway, when they do admit these patients, they are doing Q4-hour sodium sometimes because they don't want to get the sodium level too low too quickly and that's the wrong thing to do you know Mark Twain said nothing so needs reforming as other people's habits and I'm sure I have hundreds of habits that people would like to change and for good reason but as far as me being able to change other people's habits on hypernatremia it has been somewhat of a lost cause despite places like up and other sources of medical information Taking my side on this for a while, and this study out of the Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology had a conclusion that they did not find any evidence that rapid correction of hypernatremia is associated with a higher risk of mortality or seizure or alteration of consciousness or cerebral edema in critically ill adult patients. Now, my listeners know that I don't treat children and I've always emphasized that what I'm saying does not necessarily apply to pediatrics or children. And apparently in the literature, there are situations where overly rapid correction of hypernatremia can cause neurologic symptoms in children. But for adults, there are a few case reports here and there, but those have its problems. And even in kids, it's my understanding that you can fairly rapidly correct these children at 12 mil equivalents in about 24 hours of sodium. So in adults, you would think with more shrunken brains, we could do even a quicker rate and be okay. And clearly the opposite of hypernatremia is not hyponatremia when it comes to treatment. So when we're dealing with chronic hyponatremia, We usually only want to raise the serum sodium by about 6 milliequivalents in a 24-hour period. Maximum rate of correction should be about 8 milliequivalents in a 24-hour period if it's severe hyponatremia with symptoms. So subjectively, as a hospitalist in my career, where I see hypernatremia, high sodium levels in the blood the most, is when the urge to drink is impaired, such as at the end stages of dementia. Now, I think that's a hospice situation. Now, that is different where patients want to drink but cannot get access to water. They're either bed-bound or nursing isn't bringing it to them in their care facility or whatever the situation. But when it's they really don't want to drink, and even if you bring them a cup of water, they won't drink it, That still often gets blamed on medical care and nursing facilities, but I think is an end-stage situation. Personally, and this is just commentary, I think it's a bad idea to put NG tubes and PEG tubes in these patients, and that's a whole discussion that happens, obviously, with the family and loved ones. But at that point, I feel that process has run its course meaning you're at the end stage of a very difficult disease and therefore you're in an end of life situation so that's one major scenario that I frequently see hypernatremia admissions for and the second scenario that I frequently see hypernatremia is usually in the ICU particularly patients on vents who can't drink for themselves and so there is losses of water. Now sometimes it's a urinary loss such as in diabetes insipidus or osmotic diuresis but admittedly very often it is poor fluid management. So what you see is a sodium climbing for days 147, 151, 155 and then the next day it's 158, 162, whatever and then finally somebody's doing something about it and that's a shame when that does happen. So getting back to this study they were looking at patients who both had hypernatremia on admission and hospital acquired hypernatremia high sodium levels and they were looking at rapid correction versus slow correction and there was no problem meaning zero cases when they did rapid correction zero cases of cerebral edema zero cases of seizures and zero cases of alteration in consciousness that was attributable to the correction of the hypernatremia. Now, obviously, the patients that have hypernatremia often have alteration of the consciousness because of the hypernatremia. So getting that sodium down is often very helpful to improving their cognition. So there's been no guidelines on the correction rate for hypernatremia. So it often is just left to us as clinicians to decide how quickly to correct this problem. And again, I think it is okay in adults to do it quickly. Now, one side note of caution is in diabetic ketoacidosis. It's not where I see a ton of severe hypernatremia as one of the major problems, but it is known in children and adolescents that rapid correction of hypertonicity caused by hyperglycemia can result in cerebral edema. And the vast majority of fatal or life-threatening cases of cerebral edema that are with DKA have been with people under 20 years old. But again, getting back to these few case reports in adults often has to do with DKA. So most patients with DKA are actually mildly hyponatremic, but they can have a marked osmotic diuresis and develop an elevated serum sodium concentration. And I don't wanna get in a pseudo-hyponatremia and hyperglycemia because I'm really just doing a literature review at this point. But the point is, if you do have a situation with marked hypertonicity with very high sugars and high sodiums, those may be cases where you wanna lower the sodium a little bit slower I don't have evidence to say that you absolutely need to worry about hypernatremia correction rate in that, but there are some case reports for whatever those are worth. But I've got to say I cannot remember my last case of hypernatremia with DKA. Almost always presents with somewhat low of a sodium either from pseudo hyponatremia or true hyponatremia. And my point isn't to add to the problem of global whining, but more so... There are a lot of people out there that are doing Q4 hour, Q6 hour sodiums when they get into a hypernatremia. And I get it if your point is to follow it to make sure that you're correcting quick enough. But if your whole thing is that you're trying to slow the rate of correction of hypernatremia, you're probably way over ordering sodium and BMP tests and contributing to over causing anemia and contributing to costs. And very often, nobody is following these sodiums in the middle of the night anyway. Moving right along, there's a study that's been sitting in my file for over a year. It comes out of the journal CHEST. And this is inhaled tranexamic acid for hemoptysis treatment. It's a randomized controlled trial. So this is from CHEST in 2018. And anybody who's seen coughing up of a lot of blood with hemoptysis knows very well that it is scary, but it's much more scary if you're the only one around, which can happen when you're on call or if you're working at a small hospital. A few weeks back, I was the only hospitalist in a small town in Kansas helping out there for a little bit. And in that hospital, there was no interventional radiologist. There was no arteriography. There was no pulmonologist on staff ever. So there was no bronchoscopy. So people can get into situations where you're either waiting for those people to come in if you're in a big hospital or until they're ready to do the procedure and it's scary when you're coughing up blood. Now we see it sometimes from COPD and infection and in the worst cases for me at least it tends to be from malignancies in the lungs but have certainly seen horrifying cases from necrotizing, pneumonia, and other problems. So what do you do if you're sitting there all alone while you're waiting for help? Obviously, you try and reverse anticoagulation, may need to give blood products, you know, have to think about are they on antiplatelet agents, all these things. But one thing that you might be able to do, even if you can't do true interventions like surgery and bronchoscopy and arteriography, is to consider TXA or tranexamic acid. And TXA is an antifibrinolytic agent and it can be given oral or IV, which is the only ways I've seen it given. But in this study, inhaled TXA was associated with a reduced amount of blood volume that was coughed up and improved the resolution of bleeding within five days. Now, this was a small study And it wasn't for massive hemoptysis, but it is also worth mentioning that there's been two prior randomized control trials that were also small. In fact, one wasn't even published, but these were with oral and IV TXA. And now in all three of them, the results show a reduction in bleeding in those receiving TXA compared with placebo if they have hemoptysis. And so I'm not saying this is the solution to all your problems, it won't be, but if you're taking an agent that slows the breakdown of blood clots, an antifibrinolytic agent, and you are up against the wall and don't have really anything else to offer that patient in the short term, it's at least something to think about. Because those are stressful situations, and stress is caused by caring. If stress burn calories... Just about everybody in medicine would be a supermodel. And the more options that we have, such as trying to think of TXA, and I hope I think of it, not sure I will, but I hope I think of it next time I see one of these cases where we're up against the wall, then I think it takes a little bit of that stress off. And most important, hopefully it might help the patient. In addition to feeling that you've done something that can be helpful and that you've utilized all the options out there that you can think of. Because the perspective that we have in a bad situation totally changes how we deal with that stress, which is why I do not think of myself as an ugly person and think of myself as a beautiful monkey. And speaking of perspective, it kind of ties in nice to the last thing I want to talk about, which is not a study, but... It comes from the New England Journal of Medicine, December twentieth, two 2018, and even though the title is a little off-putting, there's some very interesting stuff that I think will be helpful for everybody that's in medicine and even patients to think about. So the title, which I still don't understand, is Tackling TSC1 to Promote Nephrogenesis. So for whatever that's worth, what they were talking about was really fascinating, and sometimes and this is commentary, just adding two cents in, because it does tie into this topic a little bit, is when we talk about perspective of why we do things, we have to admit often is because we've been pressured to do so for coding reasons. The coder wants to know, does this patient have stage 3 chronic kidney disease, stage 2 chronic kidney disease, and it helps big medicine bill more. But does it really change things? that you're going to do with that patient that day, that month, or is it going to change things for the patient in the long term? And if you take something like stage 3 chronic kidney disease, actually the risk of mortality has been shown to be higher for those patients in the long term, but at the exact same time, you can tell them that the risk of progression to end-stage renal disease is very low. So end stage renal disease will occur in about 4% of your patients with stage 3 chronic kidney disease, a bit worse for the stage 3b chronic kidney disease than 3a, but I don't want to really split hairs right now. What I do want to talk about is something fascinating to me that was in this article, and that's that we have about a million nephrons if you're looking at the average kidney. So probably 2 million nephrons if you're looking at both kidneys. And As we get older, the number of nephrons decreases throughout life. So the chance of getting a chronic kidney disease and therefore maybe needing to adjust to avoid nephrotoxins or adjust medications goes up as you get older. And while that in itself is interesting, there is something even more fascinating that was pointed out in this article. And I'm going to quote it where they say, surprisingly, there is great variation in the number of nephrons from approximately 200,000 to more than 2.5 million per kidney in humans. Persons with fewer nephrons are said to have a low nephron endowment, and substantial evidence indicates that such persons are at higher risk for chronic kidney disease and hypertension through several mechanisms. And so how often have we really talked about that with our colleagues, with our patients, that you might just have a low nephron endowment? And those persons who have that low nephron endowment, when they end up getting exposed to something like a nephrotoxin or an infection that we know can cause kidney failure or stressors such as diabetes, I don't think we're often talking with them or thinking in our heads that part of this may be a gestational issue, meaning you could have been born with this low nephron endowment. And for some of the disease processes that we're seeing, obviously there can be a lot of reasons why you have hypertension, but maybe part of the reason is they don't have a lot of nephrons to begin with. And so this article, Tackling TSC1 to Promote Nephrogenesis, They're talking about how do you regenerate and induce new nephrons to compensate for either lost nephrons from being exposed to something or some environmental or medical stress versus make new nephrons for people that didn't have a lot to begin with. And while I couldn't understand all the basic research about what they were talking about, it doesn't sound like it's prime time, meaning there is no way to do nephrogenesis as of yet. So anyway, this huge variation in nephrons that we're born with, somewhere between 200,000 to 2.5 million, once again shows that our Declaration of Independence was not true when it said all are created equal, or all men are created equal. And yet, it's still one of the greatest documents out there. Life's complicated. Healthcare is complicated. Remember when Trump said after he got in office, quote, nobody knew healthcare could be so complicated, end quote? I did. All my listeners knew that too. And thank you for once again letting me add more complicated facts to your already very full heads. I will catch you on the next round. This is Dr. Gil Peratt.